Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're in charge of hiring and Indeed has solutions, like sponsored jobs, which increase the visibility of your post in search results to make sure the right candidates find you faster. And we give you this toy monkey who will bang its symbols when the right CV appears on your desktop. Okay, there is no monkey. There is no monkey. But there are sponsored jobs. See why more than 250,000 companies in the UK use Indeed for hiring. Visit indeed.com slash redeem today and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. Terms and conditions apply. To succeed in small business, you need technology that runs efficiently. When you partner with a Dell Small Business Technology Advisor, you get advice, one-on-one partnership, and tailored productivity solutions, including computers with Intel Core processors, servers, storage networking, plus industry-leading monitors and accessories. It's how they help your small business make the most of every minute. To speak with an advisor today, call 0800-085-4878. That's 0800-085-4878. of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm your host, Ben Dominich. You can email us, as always, at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. We are brought to you by Podcast One, and we're coming to you from Hillsdale College's Kirby Center in Washington, D.C., where my guest for the hour today is Eric Kaufman. He is the author, most recently, of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. You can follow him on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. He is a professor at Birkbeck College, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Eric. It's great to be here, Ben. We uh, had the chance to chat a little bit uh, at a book party here uh, where we were talking about your book and talking about a number of different elements of it. What's interesting to me is we've had a number of different books come out during the kind of rise of populism and identity politics uh, globally that we've seen in recent years, Uh, and most of them are very surface level. They are operating at the level of discussion that inhabits the media or is designed to get a short boomlet, make some crazy <laughs> claims about the White House or, or, or other motivating factors. Uh, your book is not one of those. It is an uh, inc- incredibly deep dive into all of the different underlying factors that motivated uh, a number of different political movements uh, around the world, but particularly in the West. Uh, tell me how long have you actually been working on this project? Because it's clearly something that is the work of of a decade, not uh, merely the moment. Well, I mean, the reality is I've probably been looking at this confluence of immigration and national identity for over 20 years. And uh, a lot of the research that went into the book was the accumulation of Probably work I'd done since about 2011, so, you know, six, seven years worth. But but it actually came together quite quickly in terms of the writing because I'd already been researching in this area for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I kind of co- combined more of a kind of historical approach from my earlier books with a more data, survey data-based approach with my more recent uh, articles. There, there are a number of different things that one could pull out of your book that might surprise people, but I'm curious – I'm curious about the things that are sort of nearest and dearest to your heart. Um, the Whenever I'm talking to data-focused uh, pollsters, researchers, and academics, they always tend to have a couple of different things that 
they throw out there as being, right. you know, that the, the prevailing wisdom is fundamentally wrong and here's what the data actually say. What are those for you? Right. Well, the first one is it's not the economy. Stupid is sort of if we're, if we're trying to explain particularly um, right wing populism or what is what's sometimes called national populism. Um, this is mainly about uh, the response to rapid cultural change and immigration. So the, the strongest way of predicting who's going to be voting for a populist right party or movement is their views on immigration and also how important is that issue to them amongst other issues. And so that's the first thing. Whereas if you look at, you know, wealth, rich people, poor people. Yes, in particularly in uh, Britain, poor people were somewhat more likely to vote to leave the U uh, the European Union than than wealthier people. But compared to attitudes to immigration or even attitudes to death penalty, cultural values count for a lot more than than pocketbook. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing is this rural urban uh, thing, which you see on the electoral maps, where everyone says, "Ah, the cities are all cosmopolitan; they all hate populism, and all the the countryside is all kind of." bunch of rednecks. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that's very, very misleading, too, because the reason that uh, more rural areas, outlying areas don't vote or, or do vote at higher rates for populists than people in urban areas is just the kinds of people that live there. So in a city, you've got more people in their 20s with degrees and more ethnic minorities. All those groups tend not to vote for populists. But if you compare, let's say, white working class people in a city like London, and I'm sure it'd be the same in the U.S., uh, with white working class people in the countryside, you're going to get a very similar pro-leave mm-hmm. uh, vote share. And so it's a bit of an optical illusion. And yet, again, because that's easy to see, the pundits will jump on that, like the left-behind narrative, and it combines into this soup of people who are left behind by globalization living in the countryside, and, and that becomes mm-hmm. your story. You identify some key moments of uh, decisions on immigration policy that help drive these phenomenons. Uh, tell us sort of your top line, what the most important moments to be cognizant of are in understanding it. Well, um, certainly with the Brexit vote, if you look at Britain when the Tony Blair Labour government came in in 97, r- migration net in and out was rise- running at about 50,000 into Britain and had done for decades. Mm-hmm. And then sort of within a year or two, it had gone up to sort of 100, 150, then 250, and then up to 300,000 and that continued under David Cameron's government. Now, the reality is that as that was occurring, you can see the numbers of people saying immigration is the most important issue facing the country rising right alongside that. And the same pattern in nine out of 10 European countries. As that occurs, the populist poll numbers start to rise with that. So the populist poll numbers track the um, importance of immigration to the voting public. So that's kind of a fairly clear story. And yes, there were decisions taken to to make immigration easier or to increase or to become um, more liberal on asylum claims. Now, of course, there were international things going on, obviously Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, But similarly, Merkel's decision to welcome um, what turned out to be ultimately a million people into Germany was a major factor. Certainly, you can't explain the rise of the AFD in Germany without that event. Mm -hmm. The uh, experience in America that we often see is one where states that actually have some of the lowest levels of immigrant population uh, and the lowest levels of, of ethnic diversity are also the ones that tend to be most concerned about this issue and very upset about uh, the potential ramifications of cultural change. A good example of that is is a state that's at the core of any presidential campaign conversation, which is Iowa, uh, right. where uh, the populations are, are quite low, but then they also tend to have uh, immigration as a very hot-button, high-priority issue. 
tell me why that is, because I can understand why if you're a Briton who, you know, has has lived through the past couple of decades with, you know, 50,000 steady, you know, immigrants coming who suddenly sees it go in, in rapid sequence to 300, while you might say, wait a minute, you know, are we really comfortable with everybody coming in here at once? Do, right. Is this right? Is you know, are they are they going to be able to assimilate into the community or are they going to have their own standalone communities? How do I feel about that? But if you're in Iowa, you haven't experienced any of that. You only see it on TV. Well, here's an interesting stat for you, and that is that people are asked, is immigration a problem in your local area? You get about 20 percent uh, in Britain saying it's a problem locally. Is it a problem nationally? 70 percent. And so it's what people are seeing on TV. It's things they hear or, or when they visit more diverse places. So it's what they think about the national community, the, the imagined community of the entire nation, not the local. And actually, if you, you know, it's sometimes said that places with fewer immigrants seem to be more anti-immigrant. They're actually not. What it is is they have fewer minorities and immigrants who tend not to to, to vote or be care, care as much about that issue. And that's the only reason they appear to be um, more concerned about that issue. So I still wouldn't say locality and geography matters a great deal. Now, it is true that areas that have this rapid change, also in America, so when Hispanic populations moved out of of South Florida and Southern California or or elsewhere and moved into, say, the Southeast or the Midwest, um, places that had a rapid change, you you tended to see some of those places going for anti-illegal immigration, local ordinances, uh, and so it's that sudden local change which we see does matter um, on the local level. But most of people's attitudes are sort of idiosyncratic, based in sort of deep psychological values and are based on the way they think about the whole nation, not their mm-hmm. locality. Mm-hmm. The uh, the work that you did on this, uh, you know, as you said, is, is the work that it culminates after kind of two decades of what you've been looking at, uh, if not more. As you were looking at it, what numbers were you seeing change? What were the things that sort of uh, were true 20 years ago that are no longer true or that have shifted in a different direction? Well, um, I, th- I don't think it's the case that more people want uh, less immigration. I mean, your views on immigration are strongly tied to ideology and, and, and your views on things like whether things were better in the past, death penalty and other uh, values, which are basically in this liberal conservative cultural space. But what changes is really the where you rank immigration compared to the economy, health care, et cetera. And as the numbers increase, as the diversity rises, you get a, a rising priority of immigration amongst people who are already restrictionists, but they might have been kind of passive restrictionists. And then you, of course, get political parties who see that um, constituency. And then so Donald Trump in this country is an ex- example of that in the primaries, who realized that actually if you looked at the U.S. numbers, uh, immigration had a profile since about mid-2014 that it has had not had since records were kept in the 30s on this question of what's the most important issue facing the country. So it was a natural fit that somebody who could speak to that mm-hmm. was going to get a certain amount of support. Um, yeah. You know, the, the one of the dynamics of uh, the policy side of this discussion is that the form of immigration that has been experienced from the, uh, on the southern border in America is uh, of a very different kind than it was uh, under George W. Bush. And the point at which there was you know, a window of possibility for a guest worker bill or something along those lines uh, is something that went away when the, the, the demographic changes happened and the types of people who were showing up effectively. Um, that's something that 
uh, is of significant concern, I think, to to people you know across the political spectrum who want to be serious about this issue. But given the context of the 2020 presidential election, the fact that so many of the Democratic candidates running have uh, you know called for the elimination of of uh, border patrol agencies, uh, you know, the elimination of ICE, you know, and others right, right. Uh, that and and made, you know, explicit comparisons to, uh, you know, uh, kind of racist institutions of the right. past. Um, that's something that prevents any real bipartisan, uh, you know, uh, possibility of, of even sitting down. Um, the the president, uh, you know, in, in the ancient Vulcan proverb, uh, <laughs> only Nixon can go to China, um, right, you right. Know, is, is someone who has the faith of his base when it comes to the immigration issue. Why do you believe that the, the that the Democratic Party and the position that they occupy on immigration has kind of led to this point where uh, the president is far out there in this direction, they're far out there in this other direction that seems almost borderless? Uh, and there does not seem to be any kind of real coming together on the idea that, you know, hey, let's make some trade-offs here. Right, right. Um, well, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that compared to other countries in, say, Europe or even Canada and Australia, the U.S. has actually been very liberal and very tolerant. I, I mean, if this number of illegal immigrants came into Britain, I mean, it would be – Absolute hue and cry. Yeah. Uh, and and so I think you have to sort of with that as a backdrop, bear in mind. But then if you go on to the left side and the Democrat side, I mean, the nature of the left has changed and the ideological makeup has shifted, say, away from class, economic issues more towards uh, race, sex, gender type um, ideas since the 60s. And that's gradually become more and more and more intense uh, in a number of waves, late 60s, late 80s, 90s, and then since about 2013. Um, so now what? one of the problems is this, this concept of concept creep, which is that the meaning of racism has expanded to include things. For example, talking about lowering immigration, which um, if you're going to consider that racist is going to take it off the political agenda. So if you're a Democratic candidate and you're talking that language, and Bernie Sanders did talk about that a little bit, he was quickly knocked into line because he'd crossed a taboo. So it's not mm-hmm. negotiable. And the problem is when you moralize an issue, it's hard to sort of introduce it into the give and take of politics. You know, uh, I'm uh, I'm frustrated by the fact that there's so little conversation about the actual things that ought, ought to be need, <laughs> right. need to be right. done when, when it comes to, to solving this problem. And frankly, that there is no real discussion between the parties anymore about the nature of how government should approach letting people in. You said that if if this level of, of population arrived in Britain, that there would be hue and cry. But are there examples around the world, models of examples that that the United States should look to instead of looking to the the fractiousness that is in Europe as guidelines on this subject? Well, yeah, it's hard because unfortunately the problem with illegal immigration is if you create an incentive and you, you you have to face the fact that there is an incentive signal that is sent if you are lenient. Yes. And I, there's just no way, no getting around it. You may really sympathize. And I do. I mean, I, I would be doing exactly what they're doing, exactly what the refugees did who came to Europe. But the, 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 the reality is in a way that if it is easy, then the signal will go back and people, more people will come. There was a study done in, in West Africa that showed people were willing to have, I think, a 25 or even 50 percent chance of losing their life to get to Europe. Mm. Um, now, if you're going to sort of send a signal that 
you've got a good chance of coming here if you can get a foot on shore or get within shore, then of course you're going to get people coming. I think Australia has been criticized for its so-called stop the boats policy where it sort of said, okay, we're going to put you offshore and adjudicate your claim offshore. Um, and that, But that was successful in stopping these boats from coming into Australia. And that actually, let's not forget that saved a lot of lives because when you incentivize people to, to, to risk coming across in an unsafe way, then you are going to get loss of life. So there's no real way around sort of disincentivizing people from thinking if they show up, they've got a chance for essentially permanent residence. Is there a politician in Europe who has, while embracing the, the populist side, been able to successfully achieve some kind of compromise uh, when it comes to the immigration issue? Well, on illegal immigration, let's not forget what Europe's done. It's more or less offshored the problem to yeah. North Africa. So it's not as though that even a Merkel or anybody else is being liberal. Um, so they are, in fact, doing something. They're just doing it a year or two after the, the surge. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, I think I would say Europe has kind of got a hold of that issue to some extent. Macron in France. So I kind of favor that approach where he he doesn't say incendiary things and, and nasty things about the about people trying to come in. He's complimentary, but he sort of runs a tight ship and sort of is, is effective on sort of policing that border. And I think that's probably the the way I would do it rather than being noisy about it. Rather, try and be effective, cooperate with other countries, and, and try to to achieve that. Take the incentives away mm-hmm. for crossing. Eric Kaufman's uh, book is White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. You can follow him on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more of the Federalist Radio Hour right after this. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts your bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash federalist. That's netsuite.com slash federalist to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash federalist. And we're back on the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm your host, Ben Dominich. You can email us at radio at federalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. You can also follow my guest for the hour today, Eric Kaufman, on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. He is a professor at Birkbeck College, uh, and his latest book is White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the way that uh, uh, things have shifted on a number of issues you discuss uh, here in America. It's my uh, feeling that the embrace of a more explicit form of white identity politics 
uh, is at the core of the change that has taken place in the Republican Party, that basically there was a, a collection of, of uh, folks in the leadership class of the party who believed uh, that what brought it together was the fusionism of uh, the Cold War and that that had sort of been replaced with the fusionism of the era of the War on Terror, that you have uh, a fiscal conservatism surrounding a an agenda you know that's sort of Jack Kempian in nature, uh, a social traditionalism, uh, and uh, a hawkish or or let's say just uh, a uh, an aggressive uh, attitude toward the world and toward any threats that America faces. That's something that held together for a period of time after in the wake of the absence of the Soviet Union, uh, but to me really seemed to crumble in uh, uh, 2012 in particular. Uh, and to reveal that this was actually not as unifying of a message as it, as it once was for the American right. And that while we have always had kind of an underlying element of white identity politics in America, because it is, uh, you know, the, the majority of people here were white. There were a lot of, of factors that, you know, uh, played into that, um, that that's something that as it became questioned, uh, became more explicit. And that particularly the people who were questioning it coming from the left, uh, sent a message to a lot of of white people who, even if they don't read the New Republic, started right. to started to hear the same sort of message that was being printed there, which is essentially you are the past, the future is ethnically diverse, the future is not old white men, uh, and and this sort of uh, this this underlying pattern of white identity politics uh, was something that sort of came to the fore in response uh, to that feeling that they were being pushed to the sides. How much is this borne out by what you've seen in terms of your research? And where are some points where that narrative might be wrong? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that the growing demographic diversity of the U.S., um, you can see that the if you ask Americans how, you know, how important is white identity to you, I mean, Ashley Jardina kind of shows that between the 1990s and the 2010s, you had sort of a significant increase in the number of Americans who replied sort of, you know, white identity is either extremely or quite important uh, to me. And so that's partly a function just of more diverse uh, diversity. We know even in more diverse counties that there's a higher white identity amongst the whites that exist there. So that's part of the context. But then, of course, as you say, the media talking about the browning of America and, and diversity being the future and all of this, um, particularly for it's not all whites, but it's whites who who have that conservative psychological orientation that they want the past to be like the present. Uh, perhaps seeing difference more as disorder rather than as something that they want to seek. I mean, these are deep psychological uh, imperatives that are kind of a third to a half heritable, according to the literature. So this is going to work on them. And you could see, actually, um, you know, if you look at the Proposition 187 vote in California in 1994, or you, know, you look at um, the, the you know, later on in Arizona in 2010, but particularly the local anti-immigration ordinances popping up from the mid-2000s. That's just showing you that there's a certain grassroots pressure. People were sort of thinking, this is not being dealt with in Washington. We're going to deal with it locally. And, um, yeah, so that is sort of an indication that something new is changing. And, of course, as you say, without the Cold War, without the war on, well, with the war on terror kind of fraying, with Iraq and Afghanistan no longer popular, that style of American national identity, which is missionary universalism, mm -hmm. That register of American national identity, which had been dominant since perhaps the 1940s, is kind of giving way now towards a more particularist kind of European style. And actually, American 
conservatism is is becoming more European, I would say. So mm-hmm. particularisms around, you know, culture, ethnicity, religion, etc., are becoming more important. Uh, and that's not just whites. I mean, it's mar- it's this is partly a white identity phenomenon. People who have stronger white identity were much more likely to, to back Trump. Uh, but also there are particularly Asian and Hispanic conservatives who identify with America, the nation state, in a particular form. And so they also are part of this not recognizing the country I grew up in phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting after Charlottesville, a poll that I cite in there that showed – uh, after the Charlottesville riots, that Asian and Hispanic Trump voters were as likely as white Trump voters to endorse statements such as America must preserve and protect its European Christian heritage. A majority mm-hmm. did, or whites are under attack in this country, 70% of them. So it's, it is a white identity phenomenon, but also it is conservatives uh, that are also particularly Hispanic and Asian. Is identity politics uh, that, is, that is tied to uh, ethnicity or skin color is it fundamentally racist or is it something that we should view more in the context of tribalism? In other words, something that we may not like aspects right. of it, but it's innate to humanity and, and so you can't really hope to get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, I think when you ha- are at war, obviously you can get rid of it because you have a common enemy. Um, in, in sort of normal times when that's not there, then um, these identities are going to be a part of politics. The The, the plea is – that I would have is just that these should be moderate and uh, mm-hmm. you shouldn't go for everything you want. And so I don't think it's uh, surprising that you have, just as you had a, have a black interest or a Latino interest, you'd have people who identify with being European-American who might want to look out for the interests or demographic interests of their group. I wouldn't call that racism except when it leads to unequal treatment of, of fellow citizens uh, under the law. So if you have a bank and you, you really – you don't hate black people and this is what we find actually is – Whites who are attached to being white are no more cool towards blacks and Hispanics than whites who aren't attached to being white. But mm-hmm. still, if you have a bank and, and you want to hire your own just because you feel warm and cuddly towards them, yeah, that's violating people's right to equal treatment. Um, so, yeah, it can be racist, but generally I'd say it, it, it's not and it's more tribal. Then we get it. That gets into a discussion. Well, is tribalism a great thing? Well, probably not if it's excessive, but a certain moderate amount of that is it has to be, I think, accommodated in politics. There's a uh, I'm just going to use an example because it's convenient. Uh, Just the other day, uh, a writer formerly of ESPN uh, writing in The Atlantic made the case, uh, Jamel Hill, that that uh, in on some level, black athletes attending what she referred to as white colleges uh, is a, a portrayal of their community and that instead they should go to historically black colleges and universities um, and that so it, the, the idea being that basically, oh, these great athletes, they go to Auburn and Alabama instead right. of going to Grambling or something like that. Um, to me, I find that ludicrous because right. these I don't think of these programs as being, quote unquote, white programs. They have right. they've not been, you know, majority white in most cases for a long time. If they've had any success at sports, right, <laughs> it's right, one of these right. things. Where, but it's one of these things where it's like that's that's I view that as being something that is fundamentally at odds with the way we ought to think about colleges and the, the athletic experience uh, and that it, it runs toward uh, racism. But it's also something that is tribal in a way and sort of says, well, you should be loyal to these institutions that have been at the center of a particular aspect of life in America. Uh, to me, I think someone doing that from the other side, though, would be denounced immediately right. as saying, you know, uh, saying something that's clearly racist if they said that about other ethnicities is this is this a situation where the 
the level of tribalism that has increased clearly in, in our media and in our public conversation around these issues has tended to drive uh, a, a disturbing number of Americans, however you're going to tabulate it, into the arms of uh, the, uh, the kind of uh, either, I don't want to go so far as to say white supremacist, but right. certainly white nationalist or white identitarian sort of agenda. Yeah, I mean, I really think, and this is one of the things I say in the book, that um, there has to be more of an an equality around groups. You know, if everyone gets to, you know, if some groups get to express identity and attachment, all groups should be allowed to do so. If some groups are held to a particular standard, all groups should. And I think that uh, I would call it tribalism, what you what you just described. Mm-hmm. You're right. If the shoe was on the other foot, you would get a lot of accusations of, of racism. And yeah, that doesn't go unnoticed. I mean, if you there was a survey done by Pew that showed something like almost sixty percent of white Americans felt that that whites were discriminated against in America. And if you probe that, a lot of that revolves around discrimination in the culture. So mm-hmm. some groups are allowed to do do and say certain things, and other groups aren't. Coleman Hughes, African American writer, talks about. Rihanna wanting an all-black backup band. You know, if, yes. if you had a white act who said, well, I'm going to fire some Hispanics and blacks to get an all-white act. So again, those sorts of uh, what I call asymmetrical multiculturalism, it kind of stems from this idea that multiculturalism is that which isn't white, um, and it's almost taken for granted that you don't want to sort of uh, have any celebration of white culture in this multiculturalism. It's only exotic. And that goes really back sort of to the 20s, and it's a long heritage, but it's gotten more extreme. How did we get to the point where we treat everyone of Caucasian sort of European descent as <laughs> right. if they have the same culture? Uh, I mean, I, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I lived and worked in Texas for a bit, and you can tell the differences in who populated the towns just by the, the names and the foods. And I mean, there's, there's right. like, I mean, there's, there's, Six distinct kinds of barbecue that you can find, you know, all with different, uh, you know, uh, uh, originations. And if you get to the parts where the German, you know, settlers were, then you're experiencing a completely different cuisine. Why is it that we have, I mean, your, your book is White Shift. Right. Why do we have a conversation about race in America that that shoves all these white people into into the same category when they're, their history and, and in the era of Ancestry.com and 23andMe, <laughs> right, right. Uh, they're very much aware now that that their their you know history is probably quite different than what they thought it was. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is that, I mean, it used to be people were talking about, you know, Protestants as being the dominant group. And yes. then between sometime between Kennedy's election and 1980, um, you had this melting process. Part of that, people moved out of their sort of Protestant Catholic Jewish areas, started marrying each other. So part of this is that there's just been a lot of mixing. I'm sure you, I mean, I'm guessing you probably have more than one uh, strand in your background. And- my father's Puerto Rican <laughs> and my mother is uh, Dutch, Irish, uh, Anglo, wow. and some other things too. Yeah, and so, you know, I'm sort of, you know, part Jewish, part Latino, part Chinese, right? So that, so so I'm kind of a mix, but that part of this is that... Um, is this mixing that's taking place. And so the relevant identity for who you marry, where you live, how you vote, what cultural forms you, you consume is probably that white one, unless you are from a very specific group like ultra-Orthodox Jews or some group where, the, or even maybe Mormons, I don't know. But the salient identity is sort of the, the narrower one. But mm-hmm. in general, you've had this blending. So I think that, and that's partly where I'm seeing this going to in the future, that there's probably going to be absorption uh, into this white majority of other uh, groups as well. Um, and that's sort of been the melting pot pattern in America, but also even in Britain and Canada and other countries. 
Um, so the ethnicity has become a bit more recreational, I suppose. To circle back to the tribalism question, yeah. the the issue of of uh, reparations has been raised in recent uh, in recent years on the left to a greater degree than it has as sort of a merely theoretical uh, discussion. Obviously, we can credit Ta-Nehisi Coates for some of that, but I think that this the fact that you have a significant number of of candidates for uh, office in 2020 embracing reparations on the context of the Democratic primary uh, is something that's very troublesome to me, in part because while, like I think most Americans, you know, you uh, uh, today uh, actually have no history of, of having any ancestor here at the time that uh, that slavery was uh, was ended, as George Will likes to point out. Uh, but, the, but there's a secondary factor, which is, you know, what what kind of of health can we have within this conversation about race in America if we're talking about taking money from working class whites in West Virginia right. and sending it to uh, you know the middle class suburbs of, of a city of Chicago or something like that that doesn't turn into an all out horrible tribalistic moment. Uh, is there some kind of, of lesson that you would take away from the research that you've done about conversations regarding how to uh, how to alleviate challenges that still exist and are very real within the African American community and the descendants of, of uh, uh, slaves in America, uh, but also while acknowledging that just going down this reparations road is headed towards more racial animosity and more tension, not less. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know if we look at other parts of the world, uh, one of the things we see is that where you have groups focusing on. Vict- what's called victimhood nationalism. Former Yugoslavia is a good example of that. Rwanda is a good example of that. Each group goes back to the time the other group wronged them. Mm-hmm. And that what that does is it perpetuates conflict. So you'll have a conflict. You know, Yugoslavia is an example. You had violence in World War II. Each side has a narrative about what the other side did to them that's then dredged up again in the 90s. And who knows, it could be dredged up again. The, the, the point is that leads you nowhere. You have to kind of have a... A view that says we're not going to visit the sins of the fathers on the sons. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if my grandfather did something awful to your grandfather, I don't expect that, you know, um, I'm going to owe you debts now. That that that, that principle of justice is that's sort of the um, uh, Hatfield-McCoy type principle. Yeah. Of, it just isn't, doesn't work in society. So I think we have to kind of acknowledge the awful things that happened in the past, but then you have to say what actually works, what can work to improve the lot of, of African-Americans, is this really likely to do it? I don't think it will. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, there's actually a really good film that conveys that same idea called Before the Rain, oh. uh, which is about, uh, which is focused on uh, on sort of genocide and cycles of, of, of violence in uh, that part of the world. Uh, you can follow Eric Kaufman on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. His latest book is White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more of the Federalist Radio Hour right after this. All right, everybody, I want to tell you about Pluto TV. It's the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand all completely free. Pluto TV never asks you for a credit card. You don't even need to sign up to watch for free. It's easy and completely legal, and it's the way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. 
What are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. You can download Pluto TV for free on all of your favorite devices today, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation View, and anywhere else you stream. And we're back on the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm your host, Ben Dominich. You can email us at radioatthefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. We are brought to you by Podcast One, and we're coming to you from Hillsdale College's Scurvy Center in Washington, D.C., where my guest for the hour today is Eric Kaufman. He is a professor at Birkbeck College, and you can follow him on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. His latest book is White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Talk to me a little bit about the elements of uh, this discussion about immigration uh, that is tied to religious concerns. Uh, how powerful was that as a motivator uh, for uh, voters in 2016? And do you think that that's something that's going to remain as a motivator, it, you know, a situation where, you know, it, in contrast to George W. Bush's attitude towards uh, Islam, calling it a religion of peace, uh, you know, basically right. defending American Muslims, uh, where President Trump has, you know, repeatedly gone after what uh, you know he clearly views as as a threat to the American way of life, and uh, has engaged in some significantly anti-Muslim rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly see that um, feelings towards Muslims amongst Trump voters uh, are are pretty cold. Um, you know, so so that and and certainly in the primaries that was a factor. But I still think that in the U.S. case, given the history of illegal immigration, uh, it's it was still tied more to to immigration from Central America, Latin America. Um, even though the the Islamic thing is is forming increasingly part of this, in Europe it's a it's an important factor, particularly on in continental Europe. Um, and you can see that a number of West European countries are going to see their Muslim populations roughly triple between now and 2050, and that that is going to make this issue uh, increasingly central. I mean, I'm kind of of the view that an anti-Muslim politics is is not a healthy way to go. I think I would rather it be focused on regulating the rate of change in a society. But there's no question that this is having more resonance uh, on the right, and and that was certainly true in the U.S. But I still don't think it was the driving factor behind Trump's. Uh, win. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I think, a, a lot of concern on the part of a number of, of uh, centrist or uh, establishment, however you want to refer to them, Republicans, uh, that President Trump's rhetoric on racial subjects and on a number of other issues is going to, uh, d- uh, while pr- potentially helping him in the short term, doom the party's prospects in the long term. Uh, the argument uh, that's been advanced by, you know, people who you know come from the the Romney campaign or right. from a lot of these other entities uh, that essentially says well you know he might have pulled things off in 2016 but this has diminishing returns it's turning off young voters and it's going to lead us to a position where uh we're going to be incapable of of winning in in future contests how much is that borne out by the data um i i'm not sure that it is of course there's demographic shifts of course california has gone from being a republican to a democratic state but i think that doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it'll play out so for example in previous times in american history one of the reasons the republicans did so well in that period from 1896 to 1928 um, was partly on this immigration question they managed to get 
the what are called the old immigrants um, from sort of Northern Europe, uh, Ireland to some extent, uh, into that restrictionist coalition. What, one of the things we don't yet know is what's going to happen here because Mexico is not really sending people in large numbers anymore to the United States. And if the immigration flow turns towards perhaps Central America but also other sources, um, perhaps more Muslim Americans, more Africans, et cetera, then it's, it's not clear mm-hmm. that the Latinos are necessarily going to be as pro-immigration as they have been as they become more Americanized. So a lot of the the uh, survey data shows that the more Americanized English-speaking Latinos are more conservative on these issues. People yeah. who are a mixed Latino, mixed white heritage are more conservative on these issues. So a lot will depend on whether the Re- Republicans are able to win sort of patriotic or conservative members of those groups into that coalition. Because actually you could make the argument that with religion declining, with more Americans saying they have no religion – that a religious appeal likewise would be a, a losing appeal. But I don't think the re- establishment would let go of that. So I'm glad you brought up uh, the decline of religion because I find that to be so much the I, – I think it's the most important development in American right. political and social life of the last two decades that you had this underlying religious uh, uh, bias on the part of most Americans – uh, that has, thanks to increased secularization and no longer having the assumption in communities uh, that one ought to attend church or, or you know, participate in these ways, that with that going away, there hasn't been something to replace it. Uh, and so instead, we have uh, these fights play out in politics in ways that could have been resolved in communities before in a more organic way, and it increases political strife because while your your uh, you know community church uh, might have had you know is is guaranteed to have a couple of people in it who are on a different political side uh, than you, if you don't have to sit across from them in a pew with regularity, it's it's much easier to demonize them on Facebook or to view them as being you know enemies as opposed to fellow members of the community. I I was uh, you know most significantly surprised by this, as so many other uh, uh, you know political prognosticators were in 2016, in the context of South Carolina, where Donald Trump you know prevailed among people who self-identified as evangelical. One of the interesting things that uh, Emily Eakins, our friend over at, at uh, the Cato Institute, has uh, has broken down is how church attendance uh, decided uh, uh, you know was such an indicator of whether. Uh, people would vote for Ted Cruz or Donald Trump versus just calling yourself an evangelical. Are we seeing a situation where America's uh, attitude towards religion is becoming one more tribal element where it's just like rooting for the sports team uh, or or having some kind of allegiance to a product as opposed to something that actually uh, is reflected in the way that you live your life? Very good question. There's a lot in there. I mean, I, I think that... Um and this is why I said earlier America's conservatism is becoming more European in part because it's becoming more secular. And in a way, one story of Donald Trump is the decline of the religious right and the rise of the Tea Party, which in some ways is was a gateway to a somewhat more secular nationalist policy. I don't say they were secular, but in a way the issue of um, ethnic character or nationalism is sort of more of a sort of issue that you see in Europe. Uh, but I would say this, and that is that already, I mean, I think Putnam and Campbell's book, American Grace, in 2011 or 2010, showed that Americans were already selecting don- denomination in part based on politics. They were saying they were religious if they were more conservative, downplaying their religion if they were less conservative. So I think this has kind of been sorting for a while as the country's becoming ideologically sorted. I'm not sure it's 
coming necessarily from religion, but you're right that where you have denominations that bridge the political divides, that that would have been an opportunity to sort of put a lid on some of the extremism. But I do think there is a kind of an independent dynamic on both sides and on the progressive side as well. Um, this dynamic towards sort of elevating questions of race, sex, and gender, uh, almost turning them into sacred values that you transgress at your peril. And if you transgress, you're excommunicated. That's sort of what we're seeing in college campuses in some liberal arts uh, campuses just since 2014. I mean, that's a new phenomenon, and that powers, again, this sort of alienation of the other part of the country. Um, so, yeah. the, there's controversy this week uh, surrounding the release of of comedian Dave Chappelle's latest special, right. uh, where he talks about some of those issues and, and how they played out in reaction <laughs> to previous jokes he had made uh, about trans Americans. Uh, and uh, and he singles that issue out in a way that has provoked uh, a lot of negative response from reviewers. It's actually quite positive in terms of the the viewer reaction. It's got ninety nine percent from viewers on Rotten Tomatoes. The the question I would say uh, uh, that comes out of it is this: is the embrace of this this trans agenda, which is the one that has clearly the most policy sort of political agenda questions in the immediate sort of how uh, how gender issues are taught in public schools, for instance, right. uh, gender fluidity uh, events in uh, in public contexts at libraries and at schools and and on campuses and elsewhere. Uh, that's something that clearly has pr- uh, prompted some significant and negative reaction from social traditionalists and conservatives. Uh, is it something that you view as a temporary development, or is this kind of the new front of where this culture war is going to take place? Um, I think that uh, I mean, obviously, we need you know it's important to have sort of equal rights for different groups, and if someone wants to be trans, that's fine. But I think the problem is when that comes to be weaponized. Uh, and the definition of anti-trans or racism or sexism mm-hmm. is expanded to to innocuous things. You might be wearing a sombrero as cultural appropriation. I mean, yes. I'm just you know, what, or or saying um, America is a colorblind society as a microaggression. So mm-hmm. that's kind of showing, and and most minorities do not see it as problematic at all. Um, it's the use of that strategy by innovators who are trying to sort of take the ideology of what I call left modernism, this cultural left fusion, which has been powerful since the 60s, but take it to new levels. And and it's that quest to sort of develop and expand and unfold this ide- ideology in new ways that's sort of creating a blowback. And you can see, for example, in Trump's um, primary win that uh, in people who supported Trump – Political correctness, hostility to that was second only to wanting um, lower Mm. levels of immigration. So I think that tells you something that this is really – and I think a lot of center-left people know this. And and a lot of people, say, in academia who I know privately would acknowledge that these people are insane. Mm -hmm. But they can't stand up to them because they will then be seen as – having violated – or they they might be accused of being conservative or racist or whatever. So it's this vast – Something we call a complex system, like a flock of birds. One bird moves, all the birds move because they have to. And yeah. and th- there's a lot of people I think are involuntarily following a herd. You don't want to raise your head up above that herd right. and get right. noticed. Um, uh, before uh, we close, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about Brexit. Uh, your perspective uh, from uh, Britain, I think, would be valuable for our listeners. Where do you think uh, things are today, and where are they going? 
You know, it just seems to, to, to move from minute to minute, and it's unfolding in real time, very hard to predict. I mean, the things to note are there's 52% voted to leave the European Union, but the form of the deal wasn't specified. Um, and what Boris Johnson and a number of other leaders are, are seem to be angling for is something called no-deal Brexit, which is only really supported by a third of the population. Mm-hmm. So you then have the Remain side trying to block what they call a no-deal Brexit, which is not really supported by the majority. Uh, but on the other hand, what they really want is another Remain vote because they think they can, or another vote which they think they can win to Remain. Uh, so you're heading towards this deadlock. There's going to be a, I, I'm almost sure there's going to be another election, and then it'll just come down to uh, the Remain side and the Leave side are each represented by two parties each. So on the Leave side, it's the Tories and Nigel Farage's Brexit Party. On the Remain side, it's Liberal Democrats and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour. Who is going to split the vote more? It looks right now that the Remain vote is more split, that it's very unlikely that Corbyn and the Liberal Democrats can make electoral pacts. Mm-hmm. So if one district is looks like the Liberal Democrats are more likely to win it, you might get a situation where the Labour Party would stand down. That sort of thing doesn't seem in the cards, whereas for the Conservative Brexit there's more likely to be these electoral pacts, which would mean that they'd get the nod in terms of seats. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the situation with Corbyn is one that I think probably puzzles a lot of people here in America. He's clearly unpopular. If you look right. at any poll, it shows you that. Uh, he's dabbled in all these uh, things that can clearly be described as, as anti-Semitic by, in a lot of different ways, um, and whether intentional or not. And I think that uh, there's a uh, a real concern about how radical he is. Why does the left in Britain not have a more consensus leader that they could put up at a time like this to, uh, you know, potentially gain more popularity and more trust from the people when it comes to negotiating this? Well, part of this is because the way leaders were selected in the past in Britain was more like the situation prior to 1968 in America, where prior to the introduction of primaries. Mm-hmm. What's happened recently, say, in the Labour Party, is you've got more of a kind of primary system, so a whole bunch of far-left activists were able to infiltrate, paying small amounts of money and get Corbyn elected and sort of deselect more moderate people in their local constituencies. So that's led to him being able to dominate the party, even though most of the voters actually uh, wouldn't necessarily support everything he's done. I mean, he has done uh, things like not stand for, for the anthem. He's known to have supported the positions associated with the Irish Republican Army mm-hmm. in the past. So he, those things are extremely unpopular. Um, and yeah, he's very unpopular, but they can't really seem to get him out because he's sort of infiltrated the party through this primary process. Mm-hmm. Eric Kaufman is the author, most recently, of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. You can follow him on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. We'll be back tomorrow with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.